0: Hello, this is Shonda Smith-Baker from the Minneapolis Foundation, where I am the Senior Vice President of Impact and the host of Conversations with Shonda. In this episode, you'll hear me talking to Anil Harkadli, the Learning and Strategy Officer at the Thriving Foundation. In this conversation, you will hear Anil talk about his journey into philanthropy, what he's facing currently in his work, and his hope for our future. I met Anil Um, through his work at Teach for America when I was the president and CEO at Pillsbury United Communities. We had an opportunity uh, to partner in many ways and I've gotten to know him and think he's just a fantastic guy with, with lots of insights. Enjoy the show. Good morning. Good morning. I'm super happy that you're here for this conversation today. And I would love it if you would introduce yourself to our guest.
1: Sure. Uh, So my name is Anil Hercadley. My pronouns are he, him, and his. Um, And I'm currently serving as the Learning and Strategy Officer for the Thrivent Foundation, uh, which is a corporate foundation located here in the Twin Cities. Um, But the way that I would describe my life and my work really is defined by what I would consider as my life's work, which is to. help more and more people, as many people as I possibly can over the course of my life, develop the knowledge and the skills and the mindsets to be and do uh, the best work that they can. Uh, and I think I've done that in a million different ways, and we'll get the, into that over the course of the mm-hmm. time that we have together. But uh, I consider that now um, helping a corporate foundation um, learn how to be an anti-racist and uh, Uh, organization that is um, developing uh, liberation within our our, uh, community. Uh, I don't say it like that all the time. I'll say that to you. Sure. Um, But but, uh, that's just a little bit about how I spend my time these days.
0: Yeah, the work of anti-racism.
1: I went there right in the first 20 seconds. You did, you did go there. So we'll have to dive deeper (laughs) into
0: that. Um, But I would be really interested in hearing Uh, Because I know that you came into philanthropy from being on the other side of the work. Yeah. Um, Can you talk a bit about what you did before?
1: Yeah. Um, Like I said, I've worked in a lot of different sectors. I've worked in government. I've worked for the public school district here. Um, I've worked in the for-profit sector before, uh, but I came directly from nonprofit, and particularly I was fundraising, so I was working with a lot of funders. And, you know, we just recently had this conversation and this opportunity to listen to to Edgar Villanueva talk about his book, Decolonizing Wealth, and uh, his um, metaphor of the master's house. Uh, There was a little bit of the feeling of, wow, I am entering into the other side, the the side with the power, with the money, with the influence. Um, And it felt a little bit like, uh, you know, we were commoditizing something that I had... Uh, been in awe for so long and that's money and Mm -hmm. and so my first reaction when I started in philanthropy was we are throwing around dollar amounts like Mm 50,000 100,000 like it's nothing uh and so I think that was kind of the immediate uh difficult transition that I made is is just kind of redefining my relationship with money um because my parents didn't grow up with much um we had a pretty middle-class uh uh I had a pretty middle-class childhood, and so that was, I think, the most difficult transition. Um, But there were two things that I missed immediately when I started in philanthropy. One is just having the the relationship um, directly with people who were in classrooms, in schools, uh, in community, Uh, just being able to see and be with them, uh, learn from them every single day. Uh, And it felt like I was being subtly discouraged from doing that, like that's not our work. And that could have been just me in my own head. And then the other is just having a direct impact through my work. I didn't feel as though the the ways in which I was spending my time were leading to a direct impact on lives. Now, of course, like I mentioned, that was all in my own head um, because I've certainly found the ways in which that I can I can build those relationships, um, that I can have that impact. Um, And the way that that I tell my team to think about our work now is that it can't be done at a desk, uh, that there's just no way to do philanthropy at a desk. Um, because of of our charge to be the conveners, the connectors, the facilitators of the best work that's going to move our community forward. So, um, while I think I started that that transition in a place of like, this these are not my people. Um, this is just so different and so weird. Uh, and how am I ever going to feel like I'm making an impact? Um, I've learned to be able to to do that. And it's it, I did theater in high school, so I always say that you know, there's no. Such things—a small role, only small actors—and uh, that that kind of uh, applied to me in philanthropy too. That it was mm. it
0: was mostly just me and my mindset that I was bringing to it. So there's a lot in there. So when I think about anti-racism racism work on the side of philanthropy, in my own transition into philanthropy, I think I felt many of the same ways that you just explained. Um, I also see how philanthropy can be both part of the solution and part of the problem. Mm -hmm. Do you think that you're more aware of where philanthropy can pivot or change or you're more prepared for that anti-racism work because of the experiences on the other side?
1: Yes. Uh, For me, the beginning of anti-racist work and and the beginning beginning of any anti-bias work is self-awareness. It's curiosity, it's empathy. And so to have been working in multiple different sectors, to have built relationships that I've brought with me to the philanthropic world uh, and leveraged as, as a member of the philanthropic community, I feel like I'm well positioned to continue to to think with an empathetic lens, to always be curious, to understand another perspective. Um, and so to, at, a, at a very basic level, if we were breaking down anti-racism work in practice, um, Absolutely. Having worked in multiple different sectors, not being kind of totally um, uh, boxed in by all of the the acronyms and the terms and the mm-hmm. mindsets that philanthropy has held for so long uh, has helped me, I think, has pushed me further in the work.
0: In Edgar's book, Decolonizing Wealth, the slave and the slavery analogy really got to me in reading it. And I think part of it is how you grow up, especially for me, I assume as an African-American and thinking about um, the analogy of folks that are asking for dollars being in the field and people that, you know, the few people of color that make it into philanthropy working in the house. And so there's um, a whole lot that goes into that in terms of um, how some people may describe as like selling out to the community. Um, Have you felt that way? in your transition? Did you have to rustle that down at all? Did that come up when you read the book?
1: It absolutely came up in reading the book. The reason that I don't always feel like that, although I, I, there are times when I have the times that I do feel like it is when I'm silent. Uh, when something happens, something is said, something is done, uh, an implication is made, and there's silence. And I have that choice to say something or to not say something. And if I don't say something, uh, and thankfully, there, there are less times where I don't say something than when I, I just raise my hand and say, hey, you know, I just want to point out that that seems like we're implying X. Uh, and I don't think we mean it that way, but we should be conscious that this is what we're saying. Um, uh, it reminds me, so after uh, uh, Ferguson, there was an article by a brilliant, I can't remember who the person's name is, but a brilliant um, activist within the Asian American Pacific Islander community. And she said that as AAPI folks in America, we have three choices, uh, invisibility, complicity, or resistance. Mm -hmm. And so I've broken it down in those terms, in those moments to say, I have those choices and I can make one of those three choices right now. Uh, And for a long time, because of we can call it internalized oppression, my own uh, uh, fear, uh, I would choose invisibility. Uh, and Beverly Tatum talks about complicity being when you're not actively moving against the, the moving walkway they have in the airports. Um, and that resistance is raising your hand, it's saying something, it's, it's making your voice heard. Uh, and so I, I don't, there's a long way of answering the question, I don't always feel like that because I have to actively choose resistance on the days where I feel like, oh, okay, I'm just not going to say anything. Uh, I, I more times than not still find myself raising that hand and saying, you know what, I, you know, I just have to make this uh, clear that if we are doing this, the implication might be uh, that we value our own opinion over someone else's, for example, or that we believe that we have the answers and not the per- the people most impacted, or you know, whatever it might be.
0: Mm-hmm. The work of resistance is very difficult in institutions that have long held belief systems and practices. How do you equip yourself to resist? I mean, there is a choice, but do you feel supported in that? Are you building out a community that um, does allowed you to, to either understand your internalized oppression or to build the confidence or to find safety in the midst of that resistance?
1: Yeah I mean the the work of understanding one's own relation as a person of color the 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 work of understanding one's own relationship with internalized repression is daily and constant and it's a practice and it's something that that I I think is involved with my work but not directly related it's just it's something that I know for the rest of my life I will have to think about because the forces around me the smog around me is mm-hmm. going to constantly be trying to get into my lungs uh I do feel supported at work uh and and i say this with a a lot of privilege of having come in uh having been in an executive position um and being able to articulate what i need but talking with my team and saying uh, i'm not going to be silent about things uh because i've done this work and i think that they valued that's why i'm there they valued the the perspective of, of someone who had done the work um external to the philanthropic community um i mean the way in which I, uh, you can't do it alone. I mean, so obviously that building relationships has become a critical piece of making progress, uh, considering this uh, infused into every aspect of our work um, and Lee from the the Women's Foundation, I'm, I'm gonna steal this from her, but I'm, I'm giving attribution, so it's okay. Uh, she said, equity in process leads to equity in outcomes that building a culture that understands that anti-racism is not just the words that we use. It is, it, it may start with a vision or a mission or a set of, of core values for the foundation, but it is every aspect of how we do our work as a philanthropic institution that provides us an opportunity to be actively anti-racist. Um, building that culture mm-hmm. is the thing that helps me uh, say, stay sustained in that work.
0: Yeah, one of the things that i know that i had to do it took me about 6 months into my time here at the minneapolis foundation was to think differently about what what i considered success in this field it looked really really different you alluded to it a bit in terms of you can see your work and you can touch your work in a much different way when you're working directly in community um, but on this side of the work, you're much more, or you can be much more of an invisible partner. Do you have kind of what you would define as your success measures in this work?
1: Yeah. Well, and I talked about this earlier, is if, if the way that I would define my life's work is around developing knowledge, skills, and mindsets in people so that they can be the best versions of themselves, um, when I see that happening, that's when i know that 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 i'm successful and i'm making an impact and and i'll be very upfront that the reason that i probably had so much trouble uh with that question of of what does impact look like in this work or how do i feel like
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, i'm making an impact i mean the operative word is i that i was being very motivated about like what, what how, how are people going to think i'm making an impact and so once i let go of this idea that it has to be attributed directly to me uh, and double down on what I would consider my life's work. Then, you know, for example, last month, taking 10 of our community partners, um, which is how we refer to to how other philanthropic institutions talk about their grantees, our, our community partners, taking them to see collective impact work in Philadelphia through the uh, opportunity youth Forum um, that Aspen Institute runs. Uh, and just watching them build relationships, hearing them um, reflect back on what they've learned, seeing them build relationships with other Minneapolis-based organizations that they had heard about but never talked to, and then making plans to follow up, that's that's impact. And so, you know, especially because of my role in, in evaluation, I think about contribution versus attribution. Mm-hmm. And so I know that I, you know, 50 years from now, when the disparities that we have, are, are no longer uh, and it's a distant memory. My name will not necessarily be there uh, listed as, as one of the contributing, the attributing factors, but I will know that it is never a bad thing to support someone's learning. It is never a bad thing to help someone develop more social capital out in the community that they can leverage to, to do better work. Those things are always contributing to the greater good. And so that's how I've started to think about um, impact uh, in terms of my role.
0: So you said in 50 years when we look back and the disparities are gone, do you you see a time in Minneapolis where we are not dealing with racial disparities?
1: Uh, So yes, because my hope is that we develop the skills to be able to manage complexity so that when the human tendency to uh, otherize someone, when the human tendency to feel fear surfaces, we know how to manage that. We know how not to institutionalize it. Uh, and so we, were, we are always going to be managing complexity because our, our community is getting increasingly complex uh, and diverse. And these are all amazing things. But, but in 50 years, my hope is that we understand how to make that. An asset, and not to let it di- divide us, mm-hmm. uh, and let let it uh, create the disparities or or reinforce the disparities that we've been experiencing. So so I don't think that that complexity, diversity, uh, I don't think these are things to be solved. Um, I think there are things to navigate, to leverage, uh, to manage, um, and so I would hope that. From a policy perspective, from an institutional perspective, from a social emotional perspective, we're at a place where we can actually navigate that, um, and and therefore we would have no disparities. And when something would pop up, we'd say, "Oh, we know how to we know how to handle
0: that." Mm-hmm. I'm thinking through my my reaction to that was like, "Wow, in fifty years, huh? Like that's that's sooner than what I may have envisioned it." Or maybe I haven't envisioned when I think disparities will no longer be. I do think that we have a long way to go for people to just recognize how they're acting into creating the disparities that exist now, both from an institution or systemic or even an individual place. Um, you know, Robin D'Angelo's work with White Fragility, we're still at a place where cross-cultural conversations are tough much less recognizing how you're contributing from an institutional perspective. Do you think that there's enough people in 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 our sector that are working on the hard the hard individual wor- work and I can see the smile. <laughs> <laughs> and the and, and the institutional work, I mean, you know, because we're shying away from it and so that really demands a different level of accountability and responsibility.
1: Yeah. So I have two thoughts. And of course, by the time I get to the second one, I'll probably forget it. Um, so I do believe that we have that capacity. There are a lot of young, brilliant uh, philanthropic activists in this sector uh, and in the best way possible. And and they are coming up and they will be taking on leadership positions with increasing speed uh, and depth and breadth over the next 10 years um, because the demographics of our community are changing. And so I do think that younger people who um, have grown up seeing the aftermath of 9-11, who uh, witnessed the events in Ferguson or in Minneapolis uh, or in Falcon Heights firsthand, um, it's just in their DNA. I mean, they, they will show up to work uh, knowing that the implications of success in a philanthropic institution, uh, are not just ten people went through a program, uh, which is great, and everything the the wind beneath that work is going to be anti-racism, um, and so that benefits uh, all of us.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, I also think about um, you know just as as a, a sector. There's some research that that shows now everyone uh, of the younger generations, millennials and younger, um, for the most part, is is looking for a company, an organization, uh, a place to work that is interested in social good. So I just I don't think it's just about philanthropy. I mean, I think generationally, um, you are seeing people who are showing up to Best Buy and Target and Thrivent and saying, I expect that I, I know, walking into these doors on my first day of work, that this is a place that is promoting the good of the community, that is a good corporate citizen. Uh, and that is very different. And so if you play that out, I mean, this is just in the next five years that they're projecting this out. Mm-hmm. So if you if you project this out for 50 years, like, what does the community look like, when everyone just knows that we are interconnected, That that. All of these organizations uh, are expected to be showing up in a very different way than they were 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I don't, I don't feel worried about mm-hmm. that being a reality.
0: Yeah, I, I think the word activist is very interesting in there. And that activists um, are coming in and they're you know pushing against, they're responding to what's happening Uh, typically in real time, where some of our work in philanthropy, a lot of our work is the long game and saying we're going to make these investments and hopefully over time these things change. And uh, when I was the CEO at Pillsbury United Communities, our younger staff, the activists, were saying, you know, why are we banking here or why aren't we doing this and why aren't we doing that? And in my head, I'm like, I want to do this, but this is what we actually get you know, dollars to support. And I think that there is going to be an increased tension between being responsive and having um, long, the long game goals of saying we're going to make these investments so that it changes over time in slow ways. Um, do you find that tension in the work now or do you think that that will grow um, as younger people and, and particularly activists get, come into the uh, the field of philanthropy?
1: Um So hopefully this answers the question. But the the thing that came to mind is is something that we've talked a lot about within our foundation, which is knowing our our role within the philanthropic space Um, and that there are some funders that are going to be perfectly equipped to be responsive to things that are happening in the moment. And then there are a number of funders that can and should be looking at the long game. and that each of us should be responsible for understanding. What are the things that that help us show up? Because there are gonna be young funders who would consider themselves activists uh, that are gonna wanna say, I wanna be responsive to things that are happening right now. Um, And that's great. And then we should find the ways in which um, they can get into those roles. Uh, And then there are gonna be folks who just see that a hundred years from now, this is what the community is gonna look like. And I wanna contribute to that. I know I'm going to be dead by the time that happens, but just that's, that's my form of act. I mean, like activism has been, I think, distilled into this nebulous concept of like, this is what it is. It's someone who shows up to a protest. It shows up to, but we have that concept in every sector. I mean, we have activist investors like, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, and so we, we can have activists who are are playing the generational long-term game. Um, but this is the, this is the second thing that I told you I would forget because I did forget. Mm-hmm. Um, is that we, as a as a sector, can come together and reshape the definitions of commonly understood ideas and concepts and terms, uh, because we we have money, uh, and people listen to to folks with. I mean, in the broader world, people listen to folks with money, and this is why mm-hmm. we have activist investors. Um, and so, what would it look like if we said, as a sector, if if you know the the Not just the presidents, but the vice presidents, the directors of talent, the directors of operations came together and said, uh, we're all doing our own thing within our own own corners, whether it's disaster philanthropy after hurricanes or it's, um, you know, environmental justice. uh, And we're all uh, fighting institutional racism. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Ending institutional racism is, is one of our priorities that would fundamentally shift how we think about that, that it wouldn't just be about. Uh, ending institutional racism is some sort of nebulous. Someday, maybe it's going to happen, but it's within the context of uh, disaster philanthropy after a hurricane okay. because it exists. Uh, if you if you understand, and I, I've done a lot of research on on disaster philanthropy, those those disparities are reinforced by the way that we do very rapid response philanthropy and it exists in environmental justice and in K-12 and and higher education. So what would it, how would we shift the perception that ending uh, institutional racism is just a long-term play um, if it was applied to every aspect of philanthropic work, both short-term and long-term?
0: When, um, so the money and power So we're sitting in the midst of, um, you know, you said it well that people listen when money is involved and we have an opportunity and a platform. We also are at a time in our country where we're getting ready to see the greatest transfer of wealth ever. And uh, you work for Thrivent Financial. Like, how are you guys talking about um, that transfer of wealth or how to break into new markets, how to think about engagement um differently from a broader perspective and is philanthropy brought into that conversation
1: um yes it's happening across the enterprise i think it's more in the context of philanthropically it's more in the context of donor advised funds and i know that the the in faith foundation under the leadership of chris anderson has been doing some incredible work thinking about um what does it look like to engage the next generation of of folks um, who are going to be inheriting a lot of this wealth um, and anecdotally, I've seen uh, friends at family foundations uh, thinking about what it looks like. Because again, to what I was saying earlier, around the next gener- next two generations, because we have generation um, the millennials and Generation Z to some extent coming up in, into that space, uh, their expectations about how that money is used as a tool for for good uh, is very different uh and and i think that's tied to technology and culture um and, and so yeah i i, I think thriving is is definitely thinking about it um on the donor advice side and i think that family foundations i've seen doing some really interesting work to ensure that um families as that wealth spreads too because as you get generationally i mean if you look at the cargills and the mcmillans it's like there's like a thousand people. Like I mean, it's like a lot of people. Uh and and so just being able to be mindful of of how culture is changing expectations. Uh
0: yes. So last week we spent time uh discussing decolonizing wealth. And I'm I'm very curious on if there were observations you made within those conversations or takeaways um that you have that you might be willing to share with us.
1: Yeah um the first thing that struck me and i'd read the book the weekend before is how relieved i felt that we were having the conversation uh, because as i was reading the book and, and you and i had, had a chance to touch base before all the events but while i was reading the book i was struck by how familiar a lot of it felt and edgar uh, and i have very different identities along multiple dimensions And it still felt so familiar uh, in ways that I had never articulated uh, to my colleagues, both internally and externally to to the foundation. Um, And so it felt like it gave me the agency to start a a new conversation. And I didn't feel as responsible for having to have that conversation because it was written in text in an easily accessible book form for other, people to read so it felt like gosh all of the things that I've been many of the things that I've been thinking and feeling are now in a book for for people to read and I don't have to carry the burden of expressing that um so it felt like the book was allowing uh many more people into a conversation that was being had on on in the hallways I think that's how mm-hmm. Edgar uh, described mm-hmm. it um in the hallways or you know at the bar after the meeting <laughs> yeah, uh, both, both <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> both. um so that was one thing, is is it that sense of relief that like, wow, okay, this is now out in the open. We can have this kind of open conversation about uh, the experience of some folks in, in philanthropy. Um, I was also struck at one of the events um, where we had the opportunity to hear directly from people who are on uh, the fundraising side, uh, just the pain involved with dealing with philanthropy. I mean, just the... It, it and and i don't think i would have articulated that as someone who did fundraising but just the the demoralizing nature of of the work that it can feel like gosh like what am i going to sacrifice today to be able to get the dollars to do the work uh and it shouldn't feel like that
0: it just yeah. should not feel like that um and i think the other part of, if you're talking about the the woman at the mm-hmm. church was what I felt was the pain of being working in a community that you're from so working with young people from your own community understanding what they need understanding that success comes in many forms but that philanthropy is dictating the way and the definition of success. And so if I recall, her example really was that there were kids from her community that families had faced deportation. There were families coming home from being locked up, children being locked up. And here we are measuring their proficiency rates on tests with words that aren't neutral, that don't Mm -hmm. translate. And that, um, through that limited point of view of impact, we're making big financial decisions that are moving dollars away from the families that most need it.
1: Yeah, that's right. Uh, I mean, and that, that I think was another aha, was that we can decolonize the language that we use and words like quality, rigor, Uh, inclusion can all be weaponized. uh, And usually the person on the receiving end of that weapon is the person who doesn't have the money, the power, the influence. Uh, And those are the people who are either most impacted or closest to the work that we say that we care about. And so the work to decolonize anti-racist work can be as detailed as I'm sorry, what do you mean by rigorous? Uh, what do you mean by high quality? Yeah. And those are that's that's the depth that I think he took us to, which is this is not just you being able to say the words racism exists, which is important that we should acknowledge that it exists, and it exists at, at every level of, of what we do, as detailed as how we define or measure or evaluate work, and that it's not just... Uh, something to be done out of context, which is, I think, what she was, Mm -hmm. you know, describing is like all of the ways in which philanthropy is uh, evaluating our work is done without all of this context that really matters. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that was that was the other piece. And obviously, when you when you enter a conversation like that, obviously, uh, obviously, for me, when I enter in a conversation like that, um, I feel a sense of impatience. Yeah. Uh and I feel a sense of okay, like let's do some stuff. Like now that we've had this conversation, it, people should be starting to to think about things in and at least or at least in a slightly different way. At least accept that there's another perspective from the one that they entered into the conversation and so that should allow us a path forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I I'm, you know, I'm I walked out of there ready to go. And Edgar uh before we all left, had said, you know, you have to approach people with grace, love, and kindness in this work. Uh, and so it was a really good reminder that everyone is <laughs> not everyone's, in the same place. Yeah, <laughs> everyone's not in the same place. And that's okay. And that's totally okay because because if, if it, it, you know, and, and I'll talk about my own experience, it, I, I didn't grow up thinking ab- about the world in terms of anti racism. I mean, that is a, that is something that that has developed over time. I mean my, I have my own experience. My my parents are immigrants from India, uh, from two very different experiences in India. My mom grew up in a more anglicized uh, community, and and so when we talk about decolonization, I think a lot about her experience. Uh, and my dad grew up in a in a very specific experience in Mumbai, and, and so it's had to develop over time, and it took a lot of, of work to understand self before I was able to even engage, let alone talk about it, let alone talk about it on, in a recorded setting. And so we have to understand that people can start today and and get to where they need to be. Um, mm-hmm. And so we have to give people grace, love and kindness. And 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 that may be the most important thing is that uh, as someone who walked in there saying, gosh, now we can finally talk about the, the elephant in the room uh, because this has been happening outside of the room for so long, and now it's all out in the open. And uh, some people may need some time, and that's okay. And, mm. and we're going to give it to them. And that reinforces the importance of choosing to show up and engage in that conversation. Back to the beginning of this of this chat, mm. uh, is that it, it allowed me to make a, a to re up my conscious choice um, to, to show up uh, as an actively anti racist philanthropist.
0: Yeah. The other thing that struck me was uh, the number of conversations that I have been in, that I have uh, led uh, or experienced where in some way we were expressing the same sentiments of of, um, the woman at that church, right? Saying like, it's not hitting the mark. And um, I could hear those conversations over and over again edgar has a platform with his book we have a platform with philanthropy and it was a moment where i also recognized that we don't listen equitably that there are voices that are always talking and amplifying where the need is but we don't always elevate their points of view with the same level of value as we do with other people that we see that are in our minds more legitimate. Any comment on that? It,
1: this is where if we make a conscious choice at each of our foundations, because I also don't want to say like, if the philanthropic sector does this, if, if a person listening to this says, you know what, I'm gonna show up and say, instead of evaluating in this way, or, or let's take the evaluation that we have and let's ask ourselves or actually go into a classroom uh, and talk to a teacher and say, here's the evaluation that we're using to judge whether or not we're going to continue to fund this school or this program or, you know, whatever it might be. Does this reflect the lived reality of, of your life as a teacher or your understanding of, of the lives of your students or, or parents? What would they say? I mean, that's the bar that we could set. Is we could say, and and this is I've been thinking a lot about this over the last couple of months as we've been refining our own approach to evaluation. Is you know, once we have a story to tell about the partnerships that we have, how do we actually get it in the hands, and how do we actually build a relationship with someone who can give us the feedback of, no, this has nothing to do with my lived reality because it should. If if this is the evaluation that we're going to use to take to our trustees to share with other funders, to make decisions about dollars, it has to reflect reality. And and we at our desks, uh, we with our business cards that have fancy titles and the word foundation behind it, uh, we're not fully equipped to be able to to make that distinction. And so what would it look like to be able to actually um, have the bar be? Mm. Can a person most impacted by the work that you're trying to do uh, say, this is my life. Yes, absolutely. You have captured my experience. Thank you. Like that, that is the level of trust that we're trying to build, the level of damage we're trying to repair.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and why not? And it turns out like, it's probably not the end of the world if we did that. And and so I think that there's probably fear of the unknown, but yeah, but why not uh, raise the bar to that
0: level? And I think there's a fear of not being able to articulate our impact, right? So yeah. we've driven, um, in some cases, to looking at the human condition as though they are widgets that like go through this very linear process and then come out with this outcome on the end. Yeah. And we know it doesn't work that way, but there is a dilemma. And, you know, Edgar talking about uh, evaluation being weaponized, um I think was a very serious call to action for us in philanthropy to look at our practices and see where we might need to evolve them in a way that uh, moves us more towards partnership and real understanding what's happening on the ground. Yeah.
1: Well, this is where empathy and curiosity become critical mindsets that anyone in philanthropy would, would benefit of, of just constantly developing is, is, you know, to answer the question that, that I posed before, which is if you were to hand this to someone who's actually impacted by the work that you're funding, would this reflect their lived experience? But just ask yourself: it, Would you choose to send your child to a school just based on proficiency levels?
0: No. Well,
1: then why would you expect anyone else to do that? And why, why, if you were able to share that evaluation, that's going to bring dollars in, or not? Uh, why would you distill it to to that level of of that kind of simple of a level if you yourself would? So it's it's that level of kind of stopping on you know, building empathy, asking yourself critical questions that if we as a sector build a capacity to do, uh, it would reshape the way that we build relationships. It would, it would reshape the way that we understand impact, um, which gets us to that, that 50 years. We at the foundation have developed uh, a focus on improving the work for those who are most impacted. You don't need to improve for us, so the way that we structure it is, give us the questions that you would ask yourself about the thing that that we are supporting financially. Like, what are the things you want to learn over the next three to five years that are going to improve the work or going to improve the impact? And that's how we evaluate. So in a year, we'll come back and say, what have you learned along, you know, about all of these questions? Uh, and if you've demonstrated the capacity to to dig into that, if you've established that your program. Uh, or approach is actually uh, working in the way that you needed to that those are the ways that we would think about um, renewing or deepening or or scaling that that partnership. Um, and it's coupled with the question, do you currently have the capacity to answer these questions? And if you say no, then as part of your proposal, let us know what you would need to to be able to do that. And it could be, hey, work with we could use an evaluator just to consult with us or we want to go to these conferences or we want to we have an evaluator that we want to hire Great, but we can't ask for that level of of evaluation and learning if we're not willing to support it. Like that's that feels so unfair. And so I feel lucky that we've been able to create like a, a whole uh, process around that. But again, when we talk about equity and process leads to equity and outcomes. If 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 funding this work is about improving the work, which then impacts lives, uh, then it shouldn't just be about what we want to measure. It should be about what they want to measure. Mm-hmm. And just by virtue of the depth of these questions that we've gotten, we're going to be smarter and more discerning funders.
0: Yeah, I I do think philanthropy, in a in a sense, my my observation is is that it it's it should be, um, and, and in some cases is way more of a learning culture. Right. That that it really, for me, I guess I enter this in saying I I don't know enough in order for me to really be able to make a difference, I have to be able to look at this with new eyes and to examine this differently, to ask the right questions, to um, be able to support people where where they they are, demand something different from me. And so I have found uh, that I've had to change my own practices in the work Have you had to do that at all? And, you know, can you share with us what your practices of learning or what you had to shift as you've come into uh, philanthropy?
1: Yeah. So I'm a big fan of the Whitman Institute out of Oakland and they have a framework called Trust-Based Philanthropy. And they're a relatively small funder, similar to us. Uh, And that means that they can only engage in a finite number of, a, a pretty small number of partnerships. Um, but they realize, they recognize that, that creates the risk that they're kind of losing sight of, of a whole host of, of directions that they could go with their philanthropy. And so their way of mitigating that risk is uh, a process called due diligence. And due diligence is familiar to probably to anyone who's been in the corporate sector and, and you know any financial investment sector. Uh, for us, it's it's living out the concept that you can't do this job at a desk. You're just out. You meet someone uh, at a coffee shop and they say they're doing interesting work, great. Engage them in that conversation. You show up at a conference uh, and there's a funder that, that says, hey, I've got this, this thing that you should read. You ask them for it and you actually read it. It's a constant process of, of learning and deepening your understanding of context. So it's again, curiosity, empathy. Um, and so that's one piece of it is, is, um, is the due diligence.
0: The word proximity comes to mind when you're saying you just need to get out there. And when you're talking to people in the coffee shop or wherever you are, that you're, you're in listening and learning mode is how I, I hear you in that. Uh, Brian Stevenson talks about proximity And Robin D'Angelo talks about proximity in two very different ways. So Robin talks about it um, in the sense that uh, just because you're proximate to people of color does not make you an expert. Mm -hmm. Um, That you don't get to bypass your own work because you have a biracial niece or an adopted kid. You know, you don't you don't that doesn't give you the credibility, the knowledge that you need to actually be in the work brian Steven talks about proximity in a very similar way that you're talking about is that in order for us to really get to where we need to go we need to get proximate with the issue and proximate with community in ways that we haven't before so that we can surface better more impactful solutions um, i'm assuming that that's a piece of what you're talking about do you think about and do you build into your practices ways to get more proximate or have you built in to your practice being tuned in to understand when you have proximity? Do you know what I mean? So that when you're in the coffee shop, you're listening differently, or do you build it in so that you're actually going out and being intentional about getting proximate? Yeah.
1: I mean, I consider, I'm one of those people that considers my, work my life and that'll just that'll happen at every job that I'm in for the rest of my life Uh, and that's okay that's just the way they live so I do bring a uh, that ear to almost any conversation even if I'm talking to a friend and they say oh I'm reading this book and blah 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 I'm like wow that might be helpful for this thing that I've been thinking about can you send that to me Uh, and it can be completely unrelated to you know on paid paper related to my job Mm -hmm. um I an important question for us to ask as funders and this relates to something that you were saying before is uh, when do we know enough to act Uh, and i think for in many conversations i've been in uh funders can always want to seek that no i I just need a a little bit more information a little bit more information until i'm comfortable making this decision and that's that's a place where our team has stopped and paused and said, Do we actually need to know more information, or is this conversation we had with someone who is proximate to the work, where they're saying, Trust me on this one. I've lived in this community. Uh, I have learned in this community. I have built a life in this community, and this is the thing that I think uh, is going to move folks in my neighborhood towards, you know. Uh, a post-secondary degree that that is enough mm-hmm. that sometimes when someone uh says to you just trust me that 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 can be enough that it doesn't have to be written in a report uh the president of a corporation doesn't have to say it uh that 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 understanding in, in, at a critical level what is that the what is enough information to make a decision is is actually a lot less than I think funders have used in the past. Mm-hmm. And I think that's another area where we've weaponized language where it's like, mm, I just think that we need to, to know a little bit more before we make this decision. Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh,
1: and and what I've been grateful for is that that within my team, we've been able to push that. Because again, I mean, we, we've all come with our experiences and so we've, we've fallen into that trap where, of course, it's always helpful to know more, but when the stakes are work doesn't happen that is critical to providing opportunity, uh, or catalyzing on the assets of a community, uh, or capitalizing on the assets of a community, then, then, then we know enough, then, then yeah. we can get that money out the door.
0: Um, and I think another question is, is do I know enough to have an opinion? Yeah. And right? that's fair. And yeah. that, um, and if I don't, who does, right? Yeah. Like whatever the question that triggers that you may not be the person, or you may require more work to get to yeah. your conclusion. I think is a is a very helpful practice.
1: Yeah. Well, and and being able to say I know enough, and I've got some homework to do. So yeah. we know enough to make this decision, but my homework it's it's mutual responsibility. How do we build mutual responsibility as funders? Yeah, uh, because oftentimes it's you need to tell me all the things I want to know before I make a decision. Uh, and that costs a lot f- for the party that's seeking
0: mm-hmm.
1: financial support.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, and so so sometimes it's okay to, to bring balance to that. Um,
0: I will often say that um, in my work at Pillsbury United Communities, I am convinced that some of my best ideas Went to the trash cans, yeah. right? Like you know, um, of of in philanthropy, right? Because it didn't fit in a way um, that perhaps they were used to. Because of my proximity to community, you know, North Market is a is a prime example of that. Um, a grocery store now on the north side of Minneapolis, um, the second um, full service grocery store that um, I was fairly convinced if I would have written a proposal to get that open, it would have never been open. And so the level of risk taking, you almost had I had to kind of go out there on a limb um, to find to find my proof points and validators in order to break into kind of philanthropic dollars to get that store open. And so that's a definite lens. Like, how do I make sure that the best ideas aren't going to my trash bin? Yeah. you know, uh, figuratively? yeah
1: well, and and as funders, there are questions that we can be asking to tease that. I mean, one is, is you have to build trust and you have to build a relationship. and and the reason that we have the process that we have to build partnerships at the Thriving Foundation uh, is because rather than a long ten page application, uh, we do, Face to face conversations, and usually it's one or two, maybe three before we actually get to a partnership. is because you're not only learning about the work in a deeper level, you can ask follow up questions in the moment, but you're building a relationship. You're looking someone in the eyes and saying, Talk to me about your life, your world, your work. And we're able to do the same. They're able to ask us questions. Uh, it's because you can't get to that level of Talk to me about the thing that you know is going to be impactful for your neighbors and your community, but other funders. Are are a little squeamish about. I mean, that takes trust, but it it surfaces so much information yeah. and has actually let and 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 again setting expectations uh, that you know we as a foundation are probably not going to just fund anything, but that's important information to hear because in in the way that I I frame it up for our team is if our mission is to change the odds and the odds. Kind of at a basic level are if you can tell me uh the zip code you were born in how much education your parents had and how much they they made while you were a child i could probably tell you how much you're going to make over the course of your life those are the odds how how do we change those odds fundamentally um if that's our charge then we have to ask questions like what are the things that you know are going to be transformational uh, in terms of opportunity um, that other funders are are maybe hesitating about that's where you surface the the truly amazing opportunities to to partner in a community mm-hmm. um, that you wouldn't get unless you you built unless we as funders build a different practice around asking better questions.
0: Mm-hmm. When uh, when foundations say that they're partnering with their grantees. <laughs> You know where I'm going with this? Uh, You know, I would always say, like, I need them to really define what partnership means, right? Like, you can't just change the word and not evolve your practice. Totally. Um, And so it sounds like Thriving, at Thriving, the the Thriving Foundation, that you guys are being really intentional about, what does it mean to actually partner? Mm -hmm. Do you have that defined? Yeah, so what's interesting
1: is that uh, at a practical level, I could tell you the ways in which we have partnered. And, and, um, broadly speaking, we talk a lot about the multiple forms of capital that we have, uh, uh, within the foundation, which is, you know, financial and social and intellectual, um, relational. Uh, um, and so I can tell you how that's actually played out. Last week we had a, uh, a conversation we were doing reflective practice around our first year of evaluation and learning uh, and stepping back and talking about all the things that we've we've learned over the last year and how we define authentic uh, relationships was not commonly understood so that's actually something we're going to be doing over the summer mm-hmm. um, not in a prescriptive way mm-hmm. um, but we don't want to use the words if we don't know what we mean by it Uh, And we learned that pretty early in our process is that there were a bunch of terms we were throwing around, uh, including partnership, um, that we each had a a slightly different definition for. Um, So in order for us to show up in a more authentic way, we want to have a commonly understood way of talking about authentic relationships. And so part of that process um, is asking our partners what it means to them to have an authentic relationship with a funder. but at a practical level, it's some of the stuff that I've described. It's it's obviously the financial piece. Um, it's engaging and investing in in the learning and professional development in the leadership of of organizations, uh, and so that can be, you know, having folks uh, attend a, a training on uh, fundraising at Georgetown, which we did uh, a couple weeks ago, it can be going to the Aspen Institute um, convening. Uh, so I mean, it, it it looks a whole bunch of different ways, but it starts with with understanding from their perspective, what do they want a relationship to or partnership to look like? Because again, we want to disrupt the paradigm that partnership has to be defined by us, uh, and we don't want to prescribe to them like and like descend on them with a hundred corporate volunteers. And you know, we can do that if they want, uh, but like we don't want to say, as a partner, you now need to find something to do for these. 100 volunteers, which is a thing that happens. It is Because a thing. I have sat in conference rooms with where everyone in the room around that table was like, why are we here? Uh, but it was a volunteer opportunity for, yeah.
0: So um, I've had more than one <laughs> bathroom, <laughs> bathrooms painted multiple <laughs> times in community centers. Yeah, um, totally. Yeah. Because, because the, the importance and what it means when you're running a community organization to have a company decide that they want to spend time with you. Is recognition, um, and I think sometimes what we put them through is is not understood. Yeah, I mean, it takes a lot of staff time to plan something like that, um,
1: and so and, and so at a practical level, I also think um, partnership looks like not uh, creating additional work in in what, the form we were just talking about, but also through our, our partnership process, we have the conversations. We we I think this is true because of my experience that. Three or four hours of, of conversations over the course of a couple of months is still less to come to a decision about a partnership. Is still far less time than the staff time it would take to fill out a ten page application and and you know create all the answers and all that. By the time we get to that stage, we literally say you know if we if we we're accepting a partnership proposal, put on paper the things that we've discussed uh, in whatever format makes sense to you uh, and. If it has the name of another foundation, if you've presented this to someone else, just send us that. That's fine. Um, so, so again, equity in process mm-hmm. leads to equity in outcomes. Is that that it's not just about the volunteer opportunities, the the check that you write. It's not just about sending folks to a conference. It can partnership can also look like how am I respecting and valuing the time. And capacity of, of the organizations through our application process.
0: Sure. So the application process, and then you've got the reporting process. Yeah. And um, you know how are you involving how they share where their successes are, um, and do you have room for them to say what hasn't worked? Yeah.
1: I mean that is something that. So the, the short answer is, I, I hope so. Uh, we don't know yet because we just launched our our new strategy. Two years ago, and so we haven't gotten to that point of the final reporting. Um, our bet is that building a strong relationship throughout the course of a partnership will lead to that. Uh, and and we were talking about this a little bit earlier, but the the entire format for our reporting involves questions that are developed by the organization. And so, if that organization, you know, one year, two years, we only do multi years now, multi year um, partnerships. Uh, two years, three years down the line, um, they're answering the questions that they defined. And so they're able to share, you know, did we understand or how do we understand whether or not more young people are matriculating, persisting and completing uh, their associate's degree as a part of this? Like, we're hoping that having them define how what success looks like is another way of building the trust where they can say, oh, you know, we missed the boat on this one. And, and uh, we have a couple of ideas around how we might be able to, to adjust course, that that's a really exciting conversation as, as a funder to say, great, like, let's talk about what that might look like for the next two, three, two or three years. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah.
0: Who, what foundations or um, organizations are you following um, either locally or nationally?
1: The Whitman Institute out of Oakland is definitely uh, an organization that I I deeply, deeply respect. Um, And one thing that I didn't say, uh, and one reason why I respect them is that they are sunsetting in a couple of years. They were endowed with the express purpose of like, we got the money, let's spend down and be done with it. Uh, And and, and everyone kind of moves on to, to the next thing. And that's incredibly powerful. Because I don't love sitting in rooms with funders where we talk about how little money we have and how we wish we had more money to spend, because we have a lot of money uh, at our fingertips, and um, so that's I just mm-hmm. on many layers I, I really respect the women's team yeah. not to. And, and that, was those, com- well, the that was a conversation yeah. last week too, right? Yeah.
0: That there's what nine hundred billion with a B. Yeah. Um, out uh, in in philanthropy, being held in that uh, the minimum is five yeah. percent, and we often look at that that five percent minimum distribution on an annual basis as the maximum, yeah. and that there are things that uh, we could be doing in philanthropy to get more dollars out the door.
1: Yeah. Well, and and so I, I think uh, foundations that have looked at the source of their money uh, and tried to understand that and tried to navigate what that means for how they would use it. So I think Kellogg uh, is a good example. Um, Ford. Uh, Ford. Uh, I think organizations, family foundations and, and community foundations that have taken a really strong stance, Minneapolis Foundation included, uh, the McKnight Foundation, their their new diversity statement. If you have not read the annotated version of that, I would highly recommend it. Okay. um and so yeah I mean I, I for me it's it's any foundation um that is willing to take a deep look inward rather than saying it's it's the answers are found externally uh I mean the 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 thing that kept on rattling through my brain uh last week as, as Edgar was here was um the master's tools can't be used to dismantle the master's house and uh, and I'm probably butchering the exact quote by Lord, but um, mm-hmm. but what it means to actually take a look at the tools and to say, you know, what we may actually need to to build some new ones um, if we're truly going to try to to dismantle um, where we're at right now and, and and build a a more just and more um, equitable world.
0: Yeah. So Whitman Institute, Aspen, Ford, Kellogg, are there yeah. other? Yeah. other places that you you see as kind of a north star in the work right now? Um,
1: well and I, I would call out uh, two aspects of, of Aspen's work uh, as illustrative of, of an opportunity for us locally. Um, one is that young people are at the center of the opportunity youth work. Uh, when you go to the convenings they are making decisions about where the pool dollars uh, are going. They are leading panels. Um, their voices are deeply uh, uh, entwined with everyone else's um, and I think that that has to be just a bare minimum expectation is the people who are impacted by the work have to be at the table. Um, the second piece is that they are talking about employment uh, and ensuring that employers are at the table um, ready to talk about how their practices are actually uh, preventing progress and mm-hmm. not facilitating mm-hmm. progress. I mean, like,
0: think about uh, that.
1: Yeah. And so so when we talk about relevant stakeholders, we can't talk about everyone deserves to have a career that they love without bringing employers to the table who are willing to say, gosh, our hiring practices, our procurement practices. Mm-hmm. Uh, our promotion practices. Our promotion practices. Our culture of management uh, actually doesn't allow for that. So I, I, I think that's all of the ones that you listed, but Aspen specifically for those reasons, I think is a model for, for us as, as we think about our unique role at the intersection of a bunch of different stakeholder groups.
0: Mm-hmm. So as a fellow reader, what books are you reading right now?
1: Uh, so I'm usually in the midst of three or four books. Yeah, you heard I said book. <laughs> yeah, what books. What yeah. <laughs> um, So I just finished a book uh, and I wrote down the full title. It's called Tailspin, The People and Forces Behind America's 50-Year Fall and those fighting to reverse it. Ah. That's the key part. And those fighting to reverse it, it's not just a everything is falling apart, uh, by Stephen Brill. And so it it traces the roots of a lot of uh, issue areas that, that we would consider entrenched, money in politics, uh, the administrative log jam of government, and goes back 50 years to say, how did these things start? And it's very surprising to understand how money and politics for example um started because it started like truth and advertising for a Mm -hmm. pharmacy in new york or something uh and so being able to understand the roots of these issues allows for us to see the path out of it and so he's he's also careful to say here's some things that we should be thinking about if we truly want to build that path to not just achieving equity but maintaining it because the work to achieve it is going to be one thing but maintaining it ad infinitum is going to be a whole other thing. And so we need to, to understand the past. To And I'm very much a proponent of we must understand the past to, to understand the path forward. Um, I'm listening to The Fire Next uh, next Time uh, mm-hmm. by James Baldwin in mm-hmm. the car. Uh, and Jesse L. Martin uh, reads it and he has a great uh, audiobook voice. Um, and that's another one where <sighs> understanding the perspective of if we want to call it anti-racism in the the middle of the last century, I find it both, uh, I, I'm, I'm both terrified and optimistic because a lot of it is like, well, yeah, that, that's pretty much describing what's going on today. Um, and Baldwin just puts it in a way that, that allows you to feel as though you can navigate that. Like it, I never feel heavy when I, when I listen to his words. Um, Uh, And then if you're a novel reader, uh, Homegoing by Yagasi, uh, another story that that looks back and helps us understand potentially what's next for us. Uh, It's about two families in what is now Ghana uh, in the 18th century, two sisters that are separated. One is is captured and brought to the U.S. as a slave. One stays in Ghana. uh, It traces their ancestors generation by generation until present day. Um, and so when we want to think about the implications of seemingly innocuous decisions uh, and the long-lasting arc of those decisions, uh, which I think is very relevant for funders, uh, it puts it in a way that's just utterly captivating. It's her first book, which is makes me feel like I haven't accomplished anything in my life because um, she's like 10 years younger than me. Uh, but it is, it is a fantastic book, and I would highly, highly recommend it.
0: Good deal. Yeah. And well, then
1: Edgar uh, Villanueva's Decolonizing Wealth, decolonizing of course. Decolonizing
0: Wealth, Robin yeah. DiAngelo, yes. White Fragility. Yeah. That um, book sent me through some tailspins, too, I have okay. to say.
1: Well, and then there's an article that I would read. Um, I would recommend. It's uh, called Liberatory Consciousness, like Building Liberatory Consciousness. It's by Barbara Love. Uh, and she. And, and if we think about anti-racism as as kind of this – broad idea it can feel overwhelming but she breaks it down into awareness analysis acting and allyship so it just she breaks down this idea of like and, and it's related to, to decolonizing the mind and, and uh, fighting against internalized oppression. But I love the idea of a liberatory consciousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so how do you develop those mindsets is really the focus of, mm-hmm. of the article. So it's it's pretty
0: short. So this uh, triggered for me, um, Tim Wise's article, Nice is the Enemy of Justice. <laughs> uh, so we have Minnesota Nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I use that article a lot, or I think of it a lot in terms of um, you know, really our ability to um, speak truth to each other, that Minnesota niceness, whether or not we're talking about passive aggressiveness or just straight up being polite is not going to get us there and that it could actually get in the way of us making progress. Yes.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> <I> agree. <laughs> agree. Uh Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think those two things are – mutually exclusive I think you can I think that's why it prevents people from from using the words I'm actively anti-racist because they feel as though somehow that means that they have to be mean or you know whatever it's no I mean anti-racism comes from a place of love uh, I mean it, it is based out of love and so if you can understand that and and, and base any reactions or conversations you have from a place of love and understanding and as Edgar was saying, love and and grace and kindness. Uh, You can have Minnesota night. It just looks different.
0: Minnesota nights in the 21st century can just look a little different. That's okay. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) I like it. Thank you so much for spending uh, time with me today. Thank you for having me. I I appreciate it. Yeah, it was a really great conversation. Please check out the Minneapolis Foundation website to find more episodes of this podcast information on upcoming events and for my book recommendations. Thank you to Weber Shandwick for their partnership and support in making this podcast come alive.